Brothers and sisters, His is the kingdom, the glory, the honor, and the power. And He is also the faithful one. If you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to do kind of a fly over today, a high level view. I'm not going to dive too deep on this text, but as we are considering, as we continue to consider our mission and the kind of church that the Lord Jesus is calling us at resurrection to be. That's where we've been the past couple of months looking at core commitments, core uh, doctrinal as well as practical uh, things that we believe strongly the Lord wants us, all of His church, but us here especially to be about, to be doing as we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness as our primary, our prime directive, our task, uh, our prime directing task. What does that look like for us? And we've looked at many things, but there's one specific thing I really want to key in on today, and that is is the title of the sermon you see in your your order of worship there. It's, It's how the grace of God, the God that we talk about, that we sovereign grace people, Calvinists, that we talk about a God who is full of grace, but how that grace of God causes and grows glad, generous, gracious people. Because, brethren, I will tell you, there is nothing more fundamentally hypocritical than Calvinists who, are, who believe in sovereign, transformative grace being ungracious people, unlike the God that they say they worship. So, brethren, we're going to talk today and see the heart of our God. If you'd please stand, let's, we're going to read together 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 15, hear and receive the word of the Lord. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and and your love for us, See that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be inequality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack 
Father, please take this word, press it deeply into our hearts, shape us and mold us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ of whom we've read here, that we would have a heart after your own heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, brethren. I was recently reading a story. In fact, it was an email I got this week. Um, I get emails from something you, some of you may from what's called Persecution Project. Um, uh, and, uh, this, this particular email is uh, Brad Phillips, Matt Chancy, and others that work, especially in the Sudan in Africa, which, as you know, is a, an extremely, extraordinarily hostile uh, place for Christians to be. Um, it's not a safe place in Sudan. He was recounting, though, on this Thanksgiving week, um, something that I think just really hits this right on the head as we begin. He says, The story that I'm telling you this past week begins in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan and the community of the Um Serdiba, close to where the Persecution Project is building a hospital for the victims of war, genocide, and religious persecution. He says, A few months earlier... Um, the Islamist government of Sudan had attacked the Nuba people on four sides, hammering their villages with artillery, aerial bombardment, and an onslaught of soldiers and armored vehicles. One of the nearby villages attacked was Kakare. Fighting was heavy, and although it was two miles from our position at the time, I could hear the reports of artillery and small arms fire very clearly. The battle produced thousands of displaced families. Months later, Brad Phillips and I were back in the area to distribute emergency shelter tarps to the refugees of Karkari to use in covering the roofs of their hastily built grass huts. I approached one dwelling of a man surrounded by a small brood of children. I told him who I was and I gave him a tarp. He shook my hand and expressed his gratitude to me and the people back in America who had not forgotten his people in their time of need. I went on to the next hut, then the next, and then the next. All afternoon, we distributed tarps. Finally, returning back the way we came, I passed by that same man's shelter, and I could see him waving at me to come see him again. So I walked over, and I asked him what I could do for him. He smiled, and he pointed a little ways away at a small figure, a little girl walking toward us. She was about five years of age, half-starved, wearing only a tattered skirt, But that wasn't the first thing I noticed about her. What caught my attention was the large bundle that she carried on her head. When she reached my position, she took the bundle off her head and she presented it to me. A bunch of peanut plants. They came from the roof of her hut where the family dried them and stored them away from animals. I took the little bundle and I asked her her name. I was told it was Awida. I bent down and gave Awida a big kiss on the cheek, which made her laugh because my beard tickled her face. I then quickly walked away to hide my tears. Have you ever received food from a starving child? If you have, then you will not wonder why I consider it to be the greatest gift I've ever received. See, I met Christ that day face to face in in that little girl. Then he says, I made it home for Thanksgiving, but months later I went back. A year later I went back over there, and we were again in the Umservita village, And we visited a little church on Sunday, and as a foreign guest, I was invited to sit in the front next to the elders. As the service began, I watched a procession of singing children enter the building. One child in front carried a cross. She was a bit bigger and wearing a colorful dress, but I recognized her immediately as that little girl, Ouida, in rags who had given me the greatest gift. We smiled at each other, and fresh tears flowed as her message was very clear.
Ouida was exhorting me to pick up my own cross and follow her. Brethren, the reason I bring that up is because that's exactly what Paul is talking about today. He tells us about some Macedonian Christians and he's exhorting these Corinthian Christians to say, Brethren, as you abound, you Corinthians, you have the gifts of the Spirit. You are full. You have wisdom. You are knowledge. The Lord has lavished goodness on you, but there's something you lack and something fundamental. You Corinthians, you are self, you are inward and self-centered. And, and I'm trying to get you to come and, and I want to exhort you by these Macedonian Christians who have so much less than you. But look at their example. I want us to see this today. So let's just look at this together. Number one, I'm going to just run through these. Number one, as we consider God's gracious paradigm, the principles that flow out of this paradigm are in chapter 9, and we'll probably look at those next week. But I'm just going to look today in chapter 8 at the paradigm for growing glad, generous saints that the Lord puts here. And the first thing I want you to see, point A, these are all A's today for your benefit. Look at point A. Look at verse 9, because this is the key to the whole thing. What does Paul want them to see, Corinthians? To see what the Macedonian Christians these impoverished Macedonians, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. You, through His poverty, might become rich. Brethren, we call that the incarnation. Right? This is Advent, so I want our sermons to tie in somewhat with that theme. Brethren, our Lord Jesus, the incarnate God, was rich beyond measure. And full of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet for the sakes of His people, for the sakes of His beloved, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including Oida and including you and me, He became poor so that you through His poverty, His impoverishment might become rich. Jesus Himself is the paragon of God's lavish heart, and He is also the purveyor of God's lavish grace and gifts. That's what He's saying here. He's pointing to a a, a liberality that would cause Jesus, though He were God in the flesh, as Philippians 2 says, though He was God, yet He counted it not something to be grasped, but humbled Himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, of a man. Right? Jesus humbled Himself, even to the death of a cross. That's the Christmas treasure, brethren, but that's what Paul is pointing them here. And he's saying, Corinthians, do you see the grace of the Lord that He was rich beyond measure and yet for your sakes He became poor, poverty-stricken, so that you would have richness in every way in Him. He's lavish and He is good, gentle and lowly of heart. As we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus' secret ambition from His rich heart of grace was to consecrate Himself wholly, to seek and to save the sheep, the lost that the Lord had given to Him from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that vast innumerable multitude in the sheepfold, one flock, one shepherd, to give His life for them, to liberally give His life and possessions away, to wash sinners' hearts and lives and to make them rich and to flourish by His impoverishment on their behalf for the joy that was set before Him, Hebrews 2 says. He was, he, Jesus came, to, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, just a little, uh, chapter 12 rather, uh, 15, a letter, he says, Jesus came to, be, to spend and be spent for our souls. Even if His sacrifice was not readily and immediately received and requited, 
He looked to his father to reward him with a rich harvest for his labors, and he knew they would not be in vain. Because the Almighty God who had, pre, who had predestined His people, He was going to make sure that Jesus' sacrifice and liberal giving of Himself would bring, as, as we see in Hebrews, Here am I and the children whom Thou hast given me. And it was going to be a large, large quantity. It was going to be a huge group of people around that throne. Jesus gave His life. Remember Isaiah 61. Verse 1 to 3, Jesus' mission, it says there, was driven by deliverance and restoration and flourishing of all the, the weak, the heavy laden, of coming to of those who were suffering under guilt and shame of their own and others' sin, along with the miseries and the bondage and impoverishment of that sin, spiritual, emotional, material, relational. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. As the great physician, He came to heal men's souls and and their lives by the power of His shed blood by which stripes we are healed. Brethren, Jesus' mission as our head is still the co-mission of His body on earth today. We who are His hands and feet, His mission is our mission. And it's to take His call, His kingdom, His gospel to those with whom He providentially brings into our, in our contact as we have our eyes open to see it. And to say, Lord, I am ready to be your hands and feet and your mouth just to be an instrument in your hands to show the grace and the goodness, the light of Jesus into their darkness. I am here, Lord God, to ask, as Jesus said, be asking continually for His will to be done on earth as in heaven through His people, through His church, right where He's providentially placed us, knowing it will be given to us. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you when we're seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. He told us then to seek. Seek for the answers. Be seeking for the answers to the things we're asking. Looking intently and expecting, expectantly for Him to guide our path to what He wants us to do in His name for His glory and others' gladness. You know how often it is we, we pray and we say, I've asked... And we stop there. We say, well, I asked. I've done my duty. Well, Jesus says, ask, it will be given. And then if, if we believe that to be so, then we will start seeking for the answer to the thing we've asked. Seeking is actually the obedience of faith that believes His promise that asking it will be given to you. So you start seeking for it. And you seek knowing that you will, in fact, by His providential leading, you will find. Jesus didn't stutter there, did He? Seek and perhaps you'll find. Who knows? He's trying to inspire confidence. Seek, I will providentially cause you to find when you ask for my will to be done on earth as in heaven and you say, I am ready and here to be part of your work in the world. And then when you find and He leads you and He he brings you to the find, you say, but the door is closed, Lord. What do I do? You knock. You don't quit. And Jesus says that door will be open to you. If you have faith as a, you know, Jesus said, if you have faith as but a mustard seed, Matthew 17, you will say to this mountain, move, and it will be moved and cast into the sea, and nothing will be impossible for you. Brethren, so often our problem is that we are not deeply and resonantly committed to Jesus' work, His way, His kingdom, and saying, Lord, I am all in for you. Just use me. Just use me at my workplace. Use me in my home. Use me wherever. I'm just ready to be used. Open doors for me. And I will pray. Brethren, that's the paradigm. Jesus laid it out. Secondly, and this gets to the second A. Look at the allocation. I just used allocation because it works with the A. The idea of allocation, though, brethren, is to dedicate or consecrate. Right? 
It's a heart that is wholly dedicated. Look what he says of them there in verse 5. I love the way the response of these Macedonian Christians. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Do you see the process? There's a, it's a two-step process called a two-step dance of faith. First step of faith, they gave themselves to the Lord, holy and without reserve, to be consecrated to Him. These impoverished Macedonians who were, unlike the Corinthians, they had so little, so little. They were struggling. They said, we give ourselves without reserve, without hesitation to the work of the Lord Jesus who has made us rich beyond measure, who has brought joy into our souls. We say, we are yours, Jesus, to live and to die for the sake of the call. We are yours to live as Christ, to die as gain. They said with Paul, I count all things as lost that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness from Christ to seek His kingdom, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Brethren, if the poor, miserable, suffering Macedonians can do that, surely the rich, spiritually gifted Corinthians can do such a thing, and surely we can too, right? Take my life and let it be holy, consecrated, Lord, to Thee. The second step of that allocation, though, was that not only did they give themselves to the Lord, but then he says they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us, to the apostles, to the call, to well-doing and to do, specifically to participate in this good work to which the Lord had set before them. Well, what was that? You remember that at this time there was a... The apostles, we read about this in Acts, were taking up a collection for the, the saints in Judea who were going through the famine. Agabus had prophesied about this. You remember about that. And, and, and there was the, the, Jew, the Jews in, 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 in Judea, uh, these Jewish Christians, were in severe famine in that first century. They were greatly... And, these, and what happens is these poor Macedonians in southern Greece who themselves were also struggling with poverty, they said, these are our brethren. We will gladly give ourselves to them. We don't have much. But here, Paul, take it. Take it. Bless these people. We have food to eat, meat to eat, of which, of which you may know not. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to feed, accomplish His will. There is no greater food and blessing and joy of soul than that. I, I will gladly, gladly depart with a meager meal for their sakes because I am going to be satisfied far more deeply than my stomach will ever be with what I might have kept otherwise. That's what's driving these people. They are truly poor in spirit, not just poor in pocket. These are the blessed because they are the poor in spirit and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They want to be about blessing the brethren, ministering to the needs of those around them because they want people to see and savor the Jesus they have come to know. These Macedonians, they are truly an impoverished power. I was listening this week to a song. I know many of you have heard in years past, Michael Card. There's a song he wrote years ago called the basin and the towel, but he's got this line in there that I think he says, the call is to community, to the impoverished power that sets our souls free and humility to take the vow, the vow that day after day we must take up that basin and the towel. It's an impoverished power. And the, another song he wrote on that same, uh, that same uh, CD 
Uh, he, he, he talks about how this impoverished power sets our hearts free. He says, we show a love for the world in our lives by worshiping goods, spiritual material, by worshiping goods we possess. Jesus says, lay, lay your treasures aside and the principle of it. Give them to me. Love God above all the rest. Every heart needs to be set free from the possessions that hold it so tight. Because freedom's not found in the things that we own. Freedom is in the power to do what is right. When we have Jesus as our only possession, then giving becomes our delight. Let me say that again. When Jesus is your only possession, the thing that you're holding on to, that whatever else I lose, I will not let go of that. My treasure in the field, my pearl of great price, then giving becomes my delight. We can't imagine the freedom that we find from the things that we leave behind. Isn't that marvelous? That's what these Macedonians were doing. Third T, third, third A. The Macedonians were also struggling with affliction. Just look at verse 8-2 again. It says there that they were in a great trial of affliction. And yet, it speaks there and their, their deep poverty. Brethren, these weren't people maybe, you know, kind of like South Peoria. Oftentimes, you know, maybe, you know, food stamps and stuff. That's not, there, there's hunger, but brethren, these people were in deep poverty. These people were folks who, for Jesus' sake, knew about missing multiple meals, not maybe one a week, they knew poverty. Great trial of affliction. Think of Oida, <laughs> right? Living in a little hut with peanuts covering the top, and yet she gladly gives those away because of the joy that's within her. These saints had counted the cost, and they had taken up the cross for the joy, for the reward of knowing Jesus and the eternal life and inheritance in Him. They knew where their treasure was. Fourth A. Notice also the abundance, again in verse 8 too. speaks there that despite the great trial of affliction and their poverty, it says they had an abundance of their joy and they abounded in the riches of their liberality. What kind of joy is this? What's wrong with these people? Don't they know that they're suffering? Don't they know that they're lacking? Brethren, this is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. It's a soul that's been set free from condemnation by God, from fear of man, death, and of circumstances. A soul that has found that priceless treasure in the field, the pearl of great price. A soul that has received new life in the spirit of adoption from a blessed Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. A Father who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are being kept by His power through faith. Brethren, that's what these Macedonian Christians had. And that's why they could be liberal and giving in their generosity despite having almost nothing. There was joy. There was hope. They had a treasure that they could never lose. And so they gladly gave away the treasures they had. Look at the next one. Ardentability, verse 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul writes there and he says that they gave according to and even beyond their ability. They were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency. Again, I want to point out, brethren, this is not socialism, is it? Isn't. This isn't the government coming to them and saying, we implore you with much urgency, give us your money. This isn't, this isn't ungodly. This is not uh, uh, social justice. 
Brethren, this was the Macedonians going and saying, we are employing you, Paul. Here, take it, please. That's anything but socialism. This is just a righteous, I mean, I just say a righteous and holy liberality. I'm going to put out something here and today. I'm going to ask that y'all don't turn further from me for what I'm about to say. But you know that Jesus called for you conservatives, for all of us who are our conservatives of theology. If we want to be like him, it is for us to be liberals. Not liberals in our theology, but a liberal heart. Am I going to hold to the doctrines of grace and tulip and covenant theology? You better believe it. Are we going to budge one iota on our convictions? Not a bit. I'm entrenched. I am reformed, covenantal, theonomic, post-millennial, <laughs> Presbyterian to the core. But you know what, brothers and sisters? Our Lord Jesus says that the one thing we lack so often is that we are so we are conservatives, but we are conservative in our generosity. And we don't have the kind of heart that our Lord has, the liberal heart for the lost. And the liberal heart to just give, spend and be spent. Oh, that we had deeply committed conservative theology that would inspire in us liberality in our lives. Just giving of ourselves like Jesus. Wouldn't that be great if we were liberal in that righteous sort of biblical way? I don't believe those two things are at odds, brethren. fact is, I believe oftentimes the reason we are so stingy so often in our giving of ourselves and our time to other people and our stuff is because we really don't truly understand the grace of God about which we so dearly brag and boldly proclaim. Our God is rich, He is gracious, He is generous, even to a fault, and He calls us to be as well. And watch what He does. So that's why He gives this advice. There's point F. Advice, verse 8, 10, and 11. He says, I'm telling you, Corinthians, you Corinthians, it is to your advantage, both spiritually and eternally, temporally and materially, it is to your advantage to be actively seeking, desiring, strategizing, doing, and fulfilling these commitments to the good works in Jesus' name. What Paul is talking about here is they had come about a year before and had mentioned that they were looking to take up famine relief for the, this ongoing multi-year famine. And the Corinthians had initially made a pledge that they would give. In the interim, Paul had gone to Macedonia and had heard what we've said here about how they willingly and gladly said, Paul, take it all. And so what Paul is doing is now coming back and he still hasn't received the donation from the Corinthians yet. It's been a year. And he's telling them, brethren, in this case, it's time to put up or shut up. <laughs> You said you're going to give and you want to. I'm exhorting you by the Macedonians. Follow their example and their liberality. I exhort you now to fulfill what you said you were going to do. Bring it to fruition. Don't let it stand in the way. Don't be hindered by circumstances, but do what you said you're going to do and watch God bless you. So often we, are, we let good intentions and good desires to glorify God and do His works, we let them get throttled by the most trivial and minute of things, by the most inconvenient and insignificant hindrances. Brethren, the Lord calls us with a holy and righteous resolve to be about His business. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
You are the light of the world, whether you like it or not. Don't let your light be like light that's hidden under a lamp that nobody can see. How can weary, lost travelers walking in the darkness of this world see the city set on the hill if not through us? And how can we plead and say, Lord, I just didn't have enough to turn on the lights and the electric bill so they could see? Well, didn't I give you candles? Maybe the Macedonians didn't have electric lights, but they had candles and they walked up to the window and they were holding them for all to see, whatever these little candles. Use what you got, but let your light shine. That's the call. And look what he says in verse 12. Gee, there's an acceptability here. Where there's a willingness of mind from the heart to be about the Lord's business, the Lord accepts it gladly based upon what you have and he gladly receives it and will multiply it like the loaves and the fishes if we but give it to him with, gener- with glad hearts. Jesus said if you give a cup of water to one of Jesus' little ones in his name, you'd receive a full reward, Matthew 10, 42. Anything that we do by way of sacrificial glad service to one of Jesus' brethren, he counts it as being done directly to and for him. Remember Matthew 25, that which you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. We are his body. Remember the widow's might. We all know that story. Widow gave all that she had. It was about quality more than quantity. The Lord received and rewarding her accordingly. Remember the widow of Zarephath, 1 Kings 17. During the severe famine, she took her last bit of meal and oil that was designated for her and her son's last meal before they were going to die due to the severe famine. Just like these, these Macedonians. And instead she obeyed, in this case, God in faith, the word of Elijah. She made bread for Elijah. And what did the Lord do? Her flour and her oil were replenished day by day supernaturally until the famine ended. The Lord took care of, his, took care of her. Which then brings me to point H. An augmented abundance. We talked about abundance back in point D. The abundance in there the abundance of liberality that flowed from their affliction and poverty. But he speaks here uh, in verse 13 to 15 of another kind of abundance. Look at here what he says. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be inequality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, he who gathered little had no lack. What's Paul talking about there? It's an exchange of abundance that leads to greater abundance is what he's talking about. The argument essentially goes like this. Just as the temporal and material bounty of the Corinthians was being called on to supply the temporal and material needs of their poor brethren in Judea, so also the prayers of the brethren there, that the ones that would be relieved and rejoiced by their gift their prayers would be in turn directed back to God in praise and thanksgiving to the brethren in Corinth and Macedonia. God would answer those prayers and He would pour out greater abundance and liberality upon them because they gave. Give, Jesus says, Luke 6.38, and it will be given to you, shaken down, pressed together. Good measure will be poured into your lap. It takes faith, though, to be liberal like that in the right kind of way, doesn't it? It does take faith says, Jesus is the one that owns everything I have. And so I'm going to trust Him to make sure that we never lack. And I will be part of His work. 
Matthew Henry said this about this text. He said, Providence gives to some more of the good things of this world and to some less, so that those who have an abundance might supply others who are in want. It's the will of God that by our mutual supplying one another that there should be some, a, a sort of equality. Not such a leveling as would destroy property, not socialism, for in such a case there would be no exercise of true charity. All should think themselves concerned to relieve those in want, though. This is shown from the gathering and giving out of the manna in the wilderness, as Paul says here. He who gave much had no lack. He who gathered little had all they needed. The Lord made sure it happened. Fact is, brethren, as we seek first Jesus' kingdom, the advance of His righteousness, and to shine His light by our good works to all that, we, that He brings into our path, through our liberality and good works of all sorts, He will see to it that we have sufficient food, drink, raiment, shelter, even an abundance to continue on doing that very thing and even more and more. I always love William Wilberforce. We all know Wilberforce, you know, the great abolitionist through whom the slave trade in England ultimately came to end. What's interesting, I was reading a biography of Wilberforce recently, though. Wilberforce, you know, I mean, he was relatively well-to-do. He had an inheritance and, you know, uh, he had a, a nice estate. But what's often not known about Wilberforce, it wasn't just that he was a member of parliament fighting for the abolition of slavery. He was, but he was a deeply committed evangelical uh, Christian. And he was known both in parliament and throughout England as one of the most liberal, giving, generous people ever was. It was said of Wilberforce that his mind never stopped thinking of new ways to show liberality and generosity in Jesus' name. His house was just a, a haven of blessing to all because he just loved the gospel. The same gospel that made him earnest about ending the slave trade also made him earnest about just liberality in his life and his giving. You know why? Because Wilberforce knew a great and gracious Savior who sets people free. And he was determined to be the same way because he loved him. Isn't that great? I would love to have known him. Someday we shall. Turn real quickly to 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 as we close. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. For we in the West say, Steve, I don't live in the Sudan. No, I don't. And that's true. We're more like the Corinthians in that we've been greatly blessed. God has given us an abundance comparatively. So how do we think about that? Well, here's, here's the Word of God's answer to you and to me. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the life to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Brethren, do you have an iron grip on eternal life? We who say, Jesus has laid hold of me and He will never let me go, amen, do you have an corresponding by grace grip on Him and eternal life. You count Him greater than your greatest treasures on earth. So then what's the application? Well, He gives it. I love texts where, where the application is actually explicitly stated. Look at verse 7 and we're done. Here's, here's what God wants you to do with this. It's right there. Verse 7. Corinthians, 
as you abound in everything, in faith, speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love for us. That could have been, before we go further, you know, he could have, that could have been easily written about many, 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 not only evangelical, but even reformed churches. Brethren, we have deep, deep tradition. We have deep confessional heritage. We have a deep heritage of faith. Brethren, we have, to be blunt, we have a rich, rich inheritance in our reformed churches. We stand on the shoulders of giants. But what does Paul say here? I want you to abound in this also. You Corinthians want to be like Jesus? You resurrection brethren, myself, want to be like Jesus? You want to have joy in Jesus greater than anything you've ever had? Look what he says. Verse 7. See then that you abound in this grace also. Brethren, what kind of church does God want resurrection church to be? The answer, very simple, is he wants us to be a liberal, not in our theology. He wants us to be liberal and generous, full of giving and full of grace about his work. And watch him bless us. Watch him make us fruitful. Watch him add to our number such as should be saved. Watch him grow even a CPC church. And not just by plucking off of other churches, but seeing people come into the kingdom and they see our good works in Jesus' name, that we have a treasure. You see, brethren, when we treasure Jesus as our greatest treasure, other people will then begin to take notice and say, yeah, there's something that actually is worth giving my life to. So, brethren, that's my call to you today. That's the call of the Scriptures today. And you can tell them, yes, Elder Morris did tell you this, Brethren, the call for you and me today is to be liberal in the right way. Let's pray. Father, we want to have a heart like Jesus. Father, I thank you, as we heard today, that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Father, we're starting Advent. We're going into the Advent season, and year after year, We gladly think of the incarnate Word who came and lived and dwelt among us, God in the flesh, tabernacling in our midst. We beholding His glory full of grace and truth, and we rejoice in it. Father, I pray that this year we would not only rejoice in it, but that our hearts would be shaped by it. That we would be the most generous people around we would just give freely and gladly, lavishly of our time, our resources. Whatever you ask, Lord, we give it to you. Take our lives and let them be wholly consecrated, Lord, to you. And you will use us. You will use consecrated people and churches to advance your kingdom. And you will do great things for, in, and through us. I believe that. So, Father, I am asking for an abounding harvest, both this season as well as we go into 2023. Lord, I am asking that you will add to your kingdom and that you will do it through this church. That we will see people discipled in the faith. See us all growing deep in Christ, rooted and grounded in the Word of God, bearing much fruit. Give us hearts that are liberal and generous as yours is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.